Hi, welcome back to the Dirt Show. Always a couple of little technical problems, but that's live podcast. So we're going to cover a lot of subjects today. I just want one PS from yesterday's show. Yesterday I got a lot of mail on the issue of whether or not people should be identified by race uh, if they're accused of crimes, if they're fugitives. You remember the MoMA stabbing, the person was identified as white, the shooting of the homeless people, the person was not identified as black, and then just yesterday, as if on cue, right after the show, uh, a man uh, was found on, on videotape uh, hitting uh, an Asian person uh, 125 times, and they captured it on videotape, and um, prosecutors and the police identified it as a hate crime, uh, and they identified the victim by uh, race uh, or by ethnicity. Um, uh, as Asian, but they didn't identify the assailant, but they showed the video, and on the video, the assailant looks black. So uh, it's becoming very important to debate this issue, resolve this issue, and uh, have every point of view expressed. I got a lot of letters about that on all sides of that issue. So it's obviously a good issue. As I said yesterday, the only bad question is a question that isn't asked or can't be asked. So you're going to get all kinds of issues on this show, no censorship on the Dirt Show. And we'll talk about race, we'll talk about gender, we'll talk about everything that is important to you folks, important to America, important to the world. Today, however, I want to focus on my hero. My hero. I have a new hero. Obviously, you all know that uh, Zelensky is should be a hero to the world. He's a hero of mine. He's going to be speaking to Congress. I'll watch it tomorrow uh, morning. He'll be asking for things he won't get. He'll be creating some division between some members of Congress and the president and the administration. But God bless him. He's going to be speaking on behalf of his people, and he wants an no-fly zone. Uh, it will save the lives of, uh, of Ukrainians. But today, I want to talk about a hero of mine who's Russian. Yes, Russian. She's Russian, and she's a hero. I don't know that she, whether she has ever eaten in the Russian tea room. Probably never been in America, but she's a hero. So her name is Marina Ovsky Yanikova. Name isn't familiar to you, but she's the woman who held up the sign on the Russian state television saying, no war, Putin this, Putin that. She got hauled off. Uh, arrested, fined, maybe worse. Uh, uh, we don't know. But I had the pleasure of being interviewed by her on a couple of occasions. She was the primary anchor for Russian state TV, the major uh, channel in Russian state TV. And I guess I'm the best known American uh, constitutional lawyer, so they call me quite a bit to be on Russian television. I haven't been on since Ukraine. I don't think they would want to hear my views, but they did hear my views a lot during uh, the election crisis, during impeachment, um, about abortion, and a range of other issues. And she was my my interviewer, and I got to speak to Marina off camera as well. And she really impressed me. She struck me as a cross between kind of Mike Wallace, tough, impossible, difficult, uh, sometimes nasty, and um, you know, some of the the more respectable uh, TV anchors uh, from the past uh, that we admired uh, so much, Walter Cronkite. Uh, she had a combination of both. Very smart, um, very articulate in Russian, obviously, but you can hear she's articulate. It's translated for me. 
I spoke to her off camera and she did have a little English, but um, it's very hard. And she's apologized now. She said for years, she's been the spokesman, the TV anchor on um, uh, the state run TV. And remember in, in, in Russia, there is only state run. Here we have, you know, Fox on the one hand, CNN on the other hand, and uh, NPR, which is supposed to be kind of somehow governmental, but of course it's very, very hard left in many respects. And um, I, I don't particularly like its news uh, coverage. I like its art coverage. I don't like its news coverage. But uh, other than that, all media in the United States today pretty much is um, privately owned. New York City has a New York City station owned by the city, but other cities may have it as well. But in Russia, there's no such thing. Uh, everything is Pravda. Pravda means the truth with a capital T, capital T. And, um, you know, uh, they say, I used to represent a lot of dissidents in Russia. Uh, there they say, you know, marriages may be made in heaven, but the truth is made in the Kremlin. And, and they also said sentences are made in the Kremlin. So we don't know what kind of a sentence Marina will ultimately face. At the moment, she only got a fine, a small one, a couple of hundred bucks. Um, but I'm sure she's been warned. And she strikes me as the kind of woman who won't take that warning sitting down. Now, she's not going to get back on Russian state television, I guarantee you that. But um, she may be interviewed by an American network or by a European network or by some other uh, network. Um, you just never know. And if she does speak on international television, her next stop might be in the gulag. And let me tell you, I know the gulag. I have represented, um, probably represented 30 or 40, maybe more. Uh, in those days, they were Soviet dissidents, but they were Russian uh, dissidents. They were uh, uh, people who had been born in Russia, spent their lives in Russia, and then thrown in jail. Um, because either they were Zionists, like uh, my client Natan Sharansky, I had many, many Zionist clients, or they were human rights ad advocates like uh, Andrei Sakharov, and I represented Andrei Sakharov's wife. I uh, never got to meet Andrei Sakharov, I wish I had. He was a great man. He was, you know, he did <laughs> a terrible thing. He basically invented an atomic bomb for the Soviet Union. He was the head physicist on the atomic bomb project, but he was a great human rights activist and um, I think regretted having given the Soviet Union a nuclear bomb, although at points he thought maybe if both sides have nuclear deterrence, neither side will, um, will use it. Um, I, I, don't know, I don't know the answer uh, to that question. It's interesting, speaking about a nuclear bomb, one of the letters I got today, I was going to wait to read it, but it pops up as relevant and, you know, timing is everything. So this is a letter I got, which, um, remember, we talked about Hiroshima, Nagasaki, maybe Hiroshima was justified, Nagasaki was not. And I mentioned my friend, the late Bob Morgenthau, who was the district attorney, the legendary district attorney of Manhattan, that he had survived in the water, both, he had been shot down both in the Pacific and in the Atlantic, um, Friends of his called him, you know, bad luck, Bob, but uh, he survived both times. So I got a letter about that. And here's the letter I'll read it to you because it's interesting and relevant. In a previous show, you spoke about the man you knew who was shut down in both the Atlantic and the Pacific in World War II. There was a Japanese man, and then they give his name, uh, Tsutoma 
Yamaguchi, who was at Hiroshima when the bomb survived. And he survived only to be at Nagasaki when the second bomb dropped. Again, he survived. He was 29 years old at the time of the bombings. He lived to be 93. We should all have such luck. He was the only man officially recognized as surviving both. However, it may be up to 165 people who survived both, but it was never verified. So, wow, what a fascinating, what an interesting story. Imagine you get up in the morning, you're, you know, you know you're losing the war, it's going to be over. Suddenly, an atomic bomb hits, everybody around you is, is killed or injured, you survive. And then you say, oh, am I lucky? I'm going to go to Nagasaki. That's going to be safe in case they drop a second bomb. Sure enough, you get, you get a second bomb. So um, life is timing. Uh, life is where you are. Life is luck in so many ways. You know, um, I, I've been fortunate to know a lot of Holocaust survivors. And uh, uh, Ellie Wiesel was one of my dearest and closest friends. And Ellie was asked all the time, why did God let you survive after his father died in his arms, his sister? You know, he, he was one of the very, very, very few survivors at, at, at Auschwitz-Birkenau. And uh, he said it was just dumb luck, just luck, just luck. Um, it was your health. Could you make it through typhus and typhoid and hunger and all of that? Uh, did some Nazi just take a gun and put it to your head and shoot you as they did? Um, Ellie told a story about getting up one morning and seeing them hang a 14-year-old uh, child. Um, and he said that's when he lost faith in God. And uh, he tells a story in one of his books about the inmates, the Jewish inmates at, at, at Birkenau, putting God on trial and saying, God, how could you? How could you allow this? And he ends his story by saying, the verdict was a trial. The verdict was against God. And after the verdict was rendered, they all prayed. Ironic. I don't think I would have prayed had I been at Auschwitz, but maybe there was nothing else to do. I don't know. But I want to make an offer uh, on this show, and I made it. Uh, it'll be on... Um, um, uh, inside edition tonight at seven o'clock, I think I made the offer and I'll put it in print as well. I have offered to put together an international legal team just the way I did for Soviet uh, dissidents back in the, in the 1970s. I have offered to put together an international criminal defense team for Marina Ovskyanikova. Uh, if they threaten her with imprisonment and threaten to throw away the key and send her to the Gulag. I, I sure hope we, we don't need that. But if we do, it's necessary. We can't allow her to be defended just by a Russian uh, lawyer. Uh, it was always so interesting. I had to work with Soviet lawyers uh, on the Sharansky case and on uh, the Silva Zalmanson case and so many other cases. And uh, an interesting phenomenon developed. Uh, Russian lawyers wouldn't, wouldn't join our defense team. It was headed by Telfer Taylor, the great general who was the chief prosecutor at Nuremberg and was my mentor and teacher at Yale Law School. And he and I joined together uh, when we were both professors. 
to defend uh, Soviet uh, dissidents. And um, we needed Russian lawyers. We needed Soviet lawyers. Finally, a woman volunteered. Her name was Dina Kamenskaya. She was a very good lawyer. And we were surprised. Why would she suddenly volunteer to join our defense team? It was dangerous. We learned very quickly. As soon as the Soviet authorities learned that she had joined our defense team, they gave her an exit permit. They allowed her to emigrate. That's what she always wanted to do. So the story circulated among the bar. You want an immigration visa? You want to go to Israel? You want to go to the United States? Join the Telford Taylor Allen Dershowitz defense team. That'll get you out of the country. And a number of lawyers did that and they got out of the country. Uh, but we ended up without any lawyers. So um, we had to do it ourselves. And um, I wrote um, dozens and dozens of briefs, um, translated them to Russian, and um, argued them in writing in front of the, in front of the courts and uh, got a number of people uh, released. At the time, the Soviet Union was trying to show the world that they complied with the rule of law. This was between Stalin, who was the worst of the worst, and Gorbachev, who was the best of the best. Um, this was at a time, it was right after Khrushchev, and uh, there were a number of other kind of interim Soviet uh, leaders who were trying as best as possible to present a somewhat more positive face to the world. And so they um, read our briefs. Now, in order to win a case in the Soviet Union, you needed not only to have a good legal brief, you did need a good legal brief, but you needed political pressure from the United States, and we got that through the Jackson-Vanik Amendment. That was an amendment passed by the great Senator Scoop Jackson, um, and uh, it conditioned relationships and aid to the Soviet Union to releasing uh, prisoners. We also got friends of mine like Ted Kennedy. I worked very closely with Ted Kennedy. He would always say, if there's a constitutional question, call Al. Call Al. I'll tell you what the answer is. So. I called Ted a lot, and he helped me represent a lot of people uh, in, in the Soviet Union, not as a lawyer, but as a senator. They thought he was going to be the next president, even though most of this took place after Chappaquiddick. In America, I think most of us knew by that point that it would be hard for Ted Kennedy to recover from Chappaquiddick, although, as you know, he ran in uh, 1980 uh, in the Democratic primaries against Jimmy Carter. I supported him. That's where I met a young uh, senator named Joe Biden, uh, who was a very close friend of Ted Kennedy. I, I've known Joe Biden now for what, 40, 42 years. Don't know him well, but um, uh, I was at the White House um, for a Hanukkah party, a Hanukkah party in the White House when Biden was vice president and my phone rang. And uh, it was my grandson telling me he had just gotten into Harvard College and I was talking to Vice President Biden. I said, my grandson just got to He pulled the phone away from me. He said, what's your grandson's name? I said, Lyle. And he gets on the phone and says, hey, Lyle, great job getting into Harvard. Now be smart. Go to the University of Delaware. It's a better school. That's, that's Joe Biden. I mean, really, really nice guy. You may not like his politics. You may not like his party, but he's a nice guy. He's a very decent guy. And I can't say that about every president that I've known. But, uh, you know, it, it, you never know. I mean, I'm a, I'm a liberal Democrat. I did not vote for um, um, 
George W. Bush, the second George I didn't vote for the first one either, but I, I didn't really know the first one. But I got to know George W. Bush. A nice guy, really a good guy. You can sit with him and talk to him. He, he really cares about you. He cares about your family. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that about every president I've met, but uh, those two stand out for me as um, really nice people whose politics I disagree with in both cases. I fundamentally disagreed with um, uh, Bush going into uh, Iraq, and uh, I'm not, I think, completely supportive of how the current president is dealing with Ukraine. I think I support him on the no-fly zone, but I don't think I support him on not allowing for jets to be flown by by either Polish or by um, Ukrainian pilots uh, and getting into the action and trying to protect the life. So look, I, I, I criticize all presidents. I've never, never met a president who I didn't criticize. Probably the reason why I never worked for a president. Um, I was given opportunities to work for presidents um, over the years, but I never thought of myself as a kind of government person. The only time I ever worked for the government was as a law clerk uh, in the Supreme Court and in the Court of Appeals, only for one year each. But I was offered a job by the Nixon administration, believe it or not. And, you know, people ask me uh, about the possibility of working for other administrations as well. And I've always, I've always said no. But um, I want to continue my work on human rights. I want to continue my work on free speech. And right now, I want to make sure that uh, Marina is as well. Um, she ought to be recognized throughout the world as a hero. Um, she made history. Um, I think she'll have a big impact on Russia. Uh, and I think Putin knows that. And he's in a tough position. If he throws the book at her, I think the world will look even more harshly than they're already looking at it. But if he doesn't throw the book at her and she encourages others, particularly in the media, to present a more balanced uh, view, he'll be criticized. Uh, a strong person can take criticism, but um, most dictators and tyrants uh, can't. And um, does Putin have a thin skin? Uh, can he tolerate this? I mean, the first indication, if he gets to give her only a fine, maybe. But if it gets worse and there's more and more and more uh, piling on uh, from Marina, he's going to have us to deal with. Uh, American lawyers, French lawyers, German lawyers, uh, Israeli lawyers, lawyers from all over the world, uh, Chinese lawyers. I mean, I've taught Chinese lawyers. I've been to China. I've lectured at the university. I know Chinese lawyers. I may be able to get one or two to help join an international uh, defense team. There's a tremendous movement in China among um, academics and lawyers to get more freedom, both in Hong Kong and on, on mainland China. But look, China's a problem. China is looking eagerly at Taiwan and seeing how the world responds. Uh, you know, as I've said before, I think some of the blame for this whole thing lies with President Obama, who I thought was a very good domestic president, but a terrible foreign policy president and what he didn't do in Syria, allowing Syria to cross red lines, allowing Syria to use chemical weapons against its own people after vowing on behalf of the United States of America 
that he would not allow Syria to use. And that was a red line. He allowed Syria to cross that red line. That red line created a green light, I think, for uh, Putin. And uh, I think he saw that when uh, Obama's vice president became president, maybe this is a time for testing. That goes back, of course, to Kennedy. When Kennedy first got elected, uh, the effort was to try to test him. Khrushchev tested him. And the Cuban Missile Crisis was a test. Uh, and um, fortunately for America and for the world, uh, not only did John Kennedy, but Robert Kennedy, together they passed the test. And the result was that although Khrushchev was admired for backing away from the quagmire and nuclear confrontation, eventually it cost him his, his job. Um, and um, Putin, could he survive a loss in Ukraine? Oh, no. Uh, the internal dynamics of uh, Russian politics are very different today than it was during the communist um, period. So stay tuned, keep alert, and uh, please join me in uh, watching a watching uh, Zelensky, hero number one, uh, tomorrow and uh, supporting what he has to say. And number two, please uh, supporting Marina and her efforts to remain out of prison and to continue to criticize um, uh, Putin. You know, you can criticize a country and still love it. I love America. And I criticized it during the Vietnam War. I criticized it during the Iraq War. I criticized it on numerous occasions. You can criticize a country and still remain loyal and patriotic. And I, I would hope maybe Putin would understand that, but I'm not sure he does, because when you criticize today's Russia, you're criticizing Putin. You're not criticizing just Russia. Putin is Russia. Russia is Putin. So let's turn now to a couple of uh, the interesting letters uh, that yesterday's show uh, generated. Here's one. To your strained hypothetical question about reporting policy for race identity, if such info is not necessary in apprehending the suspect or to avoid incurring further victims, there is no need to mention race. It's irrelevant, doing little more than fueling stereotypes. So far, I think I generally tend to agree with that. Their race is no more relevant in reporting the incident than their sexual orientation, their origin country, or their or their great-grandfather, or the names and ages of their children. No, I think it's a little bit more relevant in the age and names of their children, but we will not get into the prize point of seeing people for the content of their character rather than the color of their skin, so long as we continually have people render, reminding us of color differences. Look, I agree with that, but I wonder if that applies to hate crimes. If it turns out to be true, again, I'm getting distrained hypotheticals. You might like them, not like them, but I'm a law professor, so I'm allowed to use strange hypotheticals. What if it turns out that not only a considerable amount, but a majority of the increasing number of hate crimes committed against Asian Americans and people of Asian ethnicity are being committed by people of African American ethnicity? What if that turns out to be the case? Then should you only report the race of the victim, Asian American, another possible hate crime, or should you report the race of the alleged perpetrator? The way the Times seeks to get around it is it doesn't report the race, but it shows a picture. 
And you look at the picture, and if you see it and if it's clear enough, you identify the person by race. And in all three of the cases, there were issues of their fugitivity and their need to be identified, but um, you know, height and weight and uh, gender are important as well. And um, so I think the question still, still remains, uh, when and under what circumstances does race matter? Um, okay. Now, let's turn to a couple of other questions. Oh, here's an interesting question. There's talk that Donald Trump might choose Ron DeSantis as his running mate in 2024. I had dinner with Ron DeSantis, the governor and his wife, in Florida when he got elected. We have mutual friends, so we had a very nice dinner. He's a very, very smart guy. His wife is terrific. Um, the question is, uh, by the way, I'm not voting for him. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a Democrat, but I liked him as a person. So here's the question. Is it true that the Constitution does not allow the president and vice president to come from the same state? Good question. The answer is, it's not true, but it's true. How can it not be true? But it's true. You could have a president and a vice president come from the same state, but the electors of that state under the Constitution cannot cast their vote for that ticket. Florida second largest number, third largest number, third largest number of electoral votes in the United States, California, Texas, Florida, New York, I guess. Okay, so no party is ever, you know, maybe the Libertarian Party, they don't care, but no uh, party in contention is ever going to nominate two people from the same state because it means they lose all the electoral votes. So the answer technically is yes, they can run, and the answer practically is no, they can't run, unless one of them moves and establishes a residence and a citizenship elsewhere. You're going to always have president and the vice president from, from different states. Okay. As a person who subscribes to the philosophy of limited, minimally intrusive government, I consider myself an equal opportunity critic. Join you in that. Whenever I criticize my own U.S. government, the government of Russia, or the government of any other country, I attempt to keep my contempt consistent. I do too. I applaud that. If I criticize the government of an Arab nation or the Israeli government, I do not consider my remarks to be anti-Semitic. Completely agree. Professor Dershowitz, please grace the Dershow listeners with your vast intelligence. Thank you. What is the proper way to fairly criticize the government of Israel without receiving an accusation of being anti-Semitic? It's a great question. Um, former president of Harvard, Larry Summers, uh, asked that question and wrote about it. And Tom Friedman of the New York Times once said to call criticism of Israel uh, anti-Semitic is wrong. But to say that people who only criticize Israel are not anti-Semitic is wrong, too. So the question is of a single standard. If you're Israeli or Palestinian... You can apply a double standard, just like as an American, I'm entitled to demand more of my own country than somebody from France is. But an Israeli is entitled to have a double standard to say, I don't care if what Israel does is being done is, is not as bad as what's being done in France or in Germany or Italy. I, I don't care. I'm an Israeli. Or if you're Palestinian and you say, look, I'm the victim of this. I care only about Palestinians. 
that, that's understandable. But if you're a Presbyterian minister and you focus only on Israel, you're a bigot. And Presbyterian ministers who focus on Israel, and many of them do, are bigots. They're engaging in anti-Semitism. Yes, they are. They're engaging in applying a double standard to the Jewish state because it is a Jewish state. And I challenge any Presbyterian minister to come on the show, write me a letter, and tell me that they can justify the current views of the Presbyterian Church, which is outrageously anti-Semitic. Anti um, the same thing is true of Human Rights Watch. Human Rights Watch was founded by a great man, Robert Bernstein, and was taken over by a bunch of radical, hard-left, anti-Israel fanatics, and the only country they really spend so much time criticizing is Israel. Um, the same thing is true of the United Nations Council on Human Rights. Only, only Israel. And the hard, hard, hard left, the um, um, members of the squad, again, double standard. So apply a single standard, and I'm with you. Um, you want to really read anti-Israel criticism? Read Haaretz, uh, one of the largest circulating newspapers in Israel. It's filled with vicious anti-Israel criticism. And um, if you want to go to the city of the world that is most critical of Israeli policies, go to Tel Aviv, more than uh, Amman, Jordan, uh, more than Ramallah. Uh, and so criticism of Israel is perfectly fair perfectly reasonable as long as it's based on a single standard. And that's what I demand. I debated BDS in the Oxford Union, you know, the oldest debate society in the world. And that's all I demanded. I got up there and I said, I want you to name any country in the world faced with threats similar to those faced by Israel, terrorism, rockets from Gaza, nuclear weapons in the hands of Iran, if they, they get it. Name a country faced with comparable threats that has a better record of human rights, compliance with the rule of law, or concern for the civilians on the other side. Nobody in the entire Oxford Union could name a single country that fit that standard. And if you apply a single standard, you'll criticize Israel, just like I'll criticize the United States and my friends in Great Britain will criticize Great Britain and my friends in France will criticize France. And my friends who are Catholics will criticize the Catholic Church. And my friends who are Jewish will criticize aspects of the Jewish religion. Yeah, yeah, that's what you do. You're a critic. You can be a Lutheran and understand that in the last years of his life, Martin Luther was an anti-Semite. You can understand that life's complex. It's not good and bad. It has elements of everything. You can understand that Jefferson was a great man who did a terrible thing. Owning, owning slaves. So um, that's uh, an issue that I, I, I think deserves to be. But then you get people like this, idiots like this. Sorry, uh, calling you an idiot, but that's really a compliment. This is Andy, 18 hours ago. Mr. Dershowitz, please comment on this. The Talmud, Talmud is a Jewish book written between about the time of uh, Jesus and several hundred years after. It's a collection of debates by eminent rabbis arguing what the proper rules of law are. So he says, the Talmud teaches that goyim, which means non-Jews, it actually means people 
uh, of nations, people of nations. Goy, Goy means nation in, in Israel, in Hebrew. Uh, the Talmud teaches that Goyim are beasts created by a Jewish God to be slaves to Jews. They may be physically similar to Jews, but they are animals, it states. All money and blood of nations belong to Jews, etc., etc. There are many more juicy racist statements in the Talmud. The next guy answers him. Can you tell me the exact source of this? I have learned the entire Talmud twice. I never saw this. Of course, it's completely and totally made up. First of all, the Talmud doesn't teach. The Talmud debates. So you have Rabbi Elchanan says this, and Rabbi Akiva says this, and this rabbi has this point of view, and that rabbi has that point of view. So it's a debate and a dialogue back and forth. And the Talmud is the first religious book in the history of the world to include dissenting opinions. At a time when other religions were burning dissidents, were beheading dissidents, the Talmud was encouraging dissent by printing the dissenting point of view. There were two great schools of thought back in the Talmudic age, the House of Hillel and the House of Shammai. The House of Hillel was more liberal, the House of Shammai was more conservative. The House of Hillel won most of the debates, but all of Shammai's arguments were preserved so that in the future, maybe people will accept his views rather than other views. It's like our Constitutional Convention. Go back and read the debates in our Constitutional Convention. The dissenting views are preserved so that we can consider both sides of the issue. So, you know, this nonsense about the Talmud, it is a staple of anti-Semitism. Uh, I would generally say it comes from ignoramuses. This guy doesn't sound like an ignoramus. This guy sounds like he knows better. He's just making it up, making it up as he goes along. So, um, again, I've gotten some criticism from emails. Why do I read the letters of people like that? It just encourages people like that to listen to my show and maybe to write letters. Hey, I don't mind that. I'm happy to engage in dialogue and disagreement. And I also think it's important that the world know that anti-Semitism isn't over, racism isn't over, anti-Asian attitudes are not over, sexism is not over, homophobia is not over. We've improved a great deal. Boy, since the time I was a kid, when I go back to the 1950s, we were a systemically anti-Semitic, anti-Catholic, and in many ways anti-immigrant, um, uh, anti-woman, anti-gay, anti-black. We were systemically all of those things Today, we're systemically the opposite. Our systems work against this bigotry, but there are still bigots. And I know because they, they watch my podcast and they write me letters. So keep writing letters. I'd like to hear from those of you who disagree as well. I'm told that more people press the like button than the don't like button. That's nice. I appreciate that. But um, I want to hear all points of view and I want to get all points of view and I want all points of view to listen to me. Um, I think I have an open mind. I hope you have an open mind. So uh, support the heroes of the Ukraine, support the heroes of uh, uh, Russia, support uh, free speech, and um, support justice.